0: Hi, I'm Larry Castle here with Kent Brown for episode 22 of That's a Good Question. Isn't that just your interpretation? Part 2. Well, welcome back. Uh, Today we continue a uh, topic that we started last week. We were answering the question. Isn't that just your interpretation? And we talked about last episode that contrary to what many people think, interpreting the Bible is not uh, the same as simply expressing your opinion on the matter. You know, what does this mean to me? So, sort of thing uh, we use the that's just your opinion and that's just your interpretation often in the same way as if there's no difference. But Pastor Ken, you laid out some important points that provide a a more solid basis for our interpretation of the Bible. Can you remind us what those are?
1: Well, we made the point that there's a great deal of subjectivity with many of our opinions. We often express our opinion based on how we feel about something or how something has struck us in the moment. I use the example of the presidential debate, uh, which happened a couple of weeks ago, and folks judging who won based on kind of nebulous factors like looking presidential or turning in a so-called commanding performance. After all, what looks presidential to one person is not necessarily the same as what looks that way to another, but with interpretation, and especially we noted last week with written communication, like the Bible, the subjectivity can be removed and you can take a more objective approach. You can look at it you can analyze it according to some rules of interpretation. And because it's written, you're not influenced by factors like how does the person look or do they have a pleasant speaking voice? So we offered some rules of interpretation that all of us use all the time in all of our communication, but we just don't always realize that we're using those. And if those rules are applied to interpreting the Bible, then it will not be like an opinion where you just go with how it strikes you. I made the statement that the reason that we have so many interpretations of the Bible is it's not because God has written it in a way that makes it hopelessly obscure, but rather because we don't all play by the same rules.
0: Whoops, gotta unmute yourself. (laughs) That's one of the rules, that's not one of the rules. Uh, So you offered the rules last time that, and they make good sense. And they are, uh, first of all, a text cannot mean what it never meant. Secondly, all texts are not alike. And then thirdly, a text can only have one meaning. So if our viewers didn't see that episode, any of you at home, I encourage you uh, watch it. It explains what each of those are in detail. But it's good that we have these rules to guide us in our interpretation so that it's not just wide open to mean whatever someone wants it to mean or feels like it should mean or is comfortable with. Um, so, but the question then some might be asking is, how do we know these are the rules that we should follow? I mean, why can't someone else come up with their own rules of interpretation that are just as valid?
1: Hey, hey listen, if if a mail-in ballot is received by election day, Hold then the on. rule should be that it, that it counts.
0: Wait, 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 we're talking about ballots and elections here is it just you can't get this off your mind. what are you what are you talking about?
1: Well, you you ask, how do we know what the rules are that we're supposed to follow? and I, and I'm trying to tell you.
0: but I but you're telling me rules about elections and ballots, and I'm asking you rules for interpretation.
1: So you're assuming that the speaker, in this case you, you started that portion of our dialogue. you're you're assuming that the speaker or the writer's intention, should control the meaning then?
0: Yeah, you've got to assume that. Otherwise, we won't be able to communicate meaningfully.
1: Well, and, and of course, you're, you're right. And for our viewers, I'm now reverting back to some semblance of sanity, <laughs> as I was obviously changing the context of the conversation between Pastor Larry and myself to make the point uh, that what we said last week about the author's intended meaning being controlling, And I'm making uh, the point that that rule Mm. is a given. To use the fancy term, it's a a transcendental. That is, it, it must be assumed to be true, otherwise you cannot communicate at all. So when Pastor Larry assumes that his, the speaker's intended meaning, should be controlling, he is, of course, right. We all assume that without even thinking about it. And I don't have the right to change his meaning later. When he asked me about rules in the context of interpretation, I don't have the right to go and talk about rules in the context of something else like an election. So I don't have the right, none of us has the right to change the speaker's or writer's, uh, meaning after the fact. And if I can do that, it causes all kinds of chaos in determining what any communication means, including what the Bible means.
0: Yeah. So, so I see what you did there. So you're saying that uh, these rules, like the ones that we talked about last week, a text cannot mean what a text never meant, and texts only have one meaning. Uh, these are rules that if you don't adhere to them, then you really can't even communicate.
1: That's, that's exactly right. And that's, and that's how we know they are valid hmm. rules, not just rules that I made up or some other people made up. In answer to your earlier question, how do we know that these particular rules are valid? Why can't somebody else just come up with their own? These are valid and they're even necessary because you cannot communicate at all if you don't follow them. In fact, you can't even communicate to refute these rules without, in fact, following them. And that's why they're, as I said earlier, a given or transcendental communication is impossible without them the reason these rules are valid and necessary is because God created human communication this way. It's a given. I mean, think about it this way. Consider God communicating with Adam and Eve, the, the very first humans. They didn't go to school to learn how to interpret what he said. They just did it. And they abided by the rule of authorial intent. The meaning is the speaker's or the writer's meaning. So when god said you're not to eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden they knew that was the meaning and they interpreted it in its context with the speakers that is god's meaning as the controlling one they couldn't make up their own so authorial intent is woven into the fabric of human communication from the very beginning and we're not able to communicate apart from it we had a young man in our church recently write to our pastoral staff to to you and me and our other two pastors and and ask this question uh, what is our objective standard to know when something should be taken literal or he said metaphorically that is take it to represent something something else and my answer to him in that email was something similar to what i'm saying here i said this to him we need to remember that literal uh interpretation is both foundational and controlling. I said it's foundational in that the first communication ever exchanged among humans had to have been literal, as Adam and Eve would not have known to what to compare or liken or symbolize at the very beginning. So they couldn't make something metaphorical without first foundationally understanding what God was communicating and what they were communicating to each other literally. The first recorded words of God to humanity are in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, when hearing that, Adam and Eve are not having to decide at that point whether being fruitful means growing apples on their bodies or or some such. The initial communication they received and they gave had to be, in the very nature of the case, literal. It's only after you've established literal meaning that then figures of speech and symbols can be introduced. So literal interpretation is foundational. And then as time goes on, language develops, symbols and figures are introduced into communication. But then there's the second thing, literal is still controlling. That is, you have to assume the literal meaning for the figures and the symbols to work. If I say Pastor Larry flew the coop, it only has the intended of meaning, intended meaning of he left. If one knows that chickens literally fly away from their from their coop.
0: I, I just want to thank you for not using the example that Pastor Larry has a screw loose.
1: <laughs> that would have been a more appropriate one for sure. <laughs> So, you know, it's not the case that interpreting something literally or allegorically are equal possibilities. You assume, we assume in communication because we were made uh, as humanity to communicate this way. We assume that something is literal because it's foundational and controlling. And then you entertain the possibility that it might be symbolizing something else, that it might be allegorical. You do not approach a statement with the equal possibility that you can take it literally or allegorically. And the difference is just up to how it strikes you. So interpretation is not a subjective exercise where we decide what it means, either in common back and forth communication or the communication from God that we have in the Bible. There are rules that govern both. And those rules are valid because they have to be assumed in order to communicate at all or even to try to deny that they're valid. They have to be assumed. They're givens. They're transcendentals, and we use them when we interpret anything, including the Bible.
0: So it seems like that is pretty straightforward. I mean, it, it should be intuitive. And yet here we are, we're going into some pretty good detail explaining this. So, uh, you know, it, it makes me wonder, why is this even a question? Why is it an issue? Apparently, not everybody sees it this way, right?
1: No, unfortunately, not everybody does. Uh, we're, of course, most concerned with interpreting the Bible. But for, before we get to that, there are other areas of society in which the laws of language are being violated and it's uh, creating problems. Years ago, uh, at a church at which I served before uh, our church, Community Bible, before that, years ago, we had a very faithful man who was taking some classes at one of our universities in the area. Uh, this man was a teacher and he was uh, getting an advanced degree in teaching, and he had to take a reading class, a reading class. And he was just uh, befuddled really at the way this reading class was being conducted and how they were told to go about interpreting the texts that they were reading. They were engaging in what's called postmodern interpretation. And just to make it very simple, It's a very loose approach to interpretation that's not tied to the text of the way we're talking about, the way really you have to communicate, the way that instructor in the class has to communicate (laughs) in order to tell them not to interpret this way. They have to be interpreting him in uh, a different way. Hmm. And I remember pointing this, this man, he came to me and he said, this is what I'm getting. And, you know, what is going on with that? We chatted about it a bit. And. I had a book on my shelf, shelf, still have it, by Robert Bork, the late Robert Bork. He was a judge. He'd been nominated to be on the Supreme Court. Some of you may remember he didn't make it, didn't get confirmed, but he wrote a number of books. One of those was called The Tempting of America. The subtitle of the book was The Political Seduction of the Law. And I read a few passages from uh, his chapter in that book on originalism, and it's saying this very idea that unless you have these rules of context and authorial intent, the original author's intent to guide you, then uh, interpretation uh, can go in any number of ways. And then we also have this going on in in academia. I mentioned postmodern interpretation of of texts. Postmodernism says one definition focuses on the, the relative truths of each person in the postmodern understanding interpretation is everything now hear this reality only comes into being through our interpretations of what the world means to us individually hmm. so you, you look at that and you just you know it, i have my truth you have your truth this whole relative idea by the 60s the notion of relative and therefore changing meaning had gained a foothold in universities, such that a man named E.D. Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H, H-I-R-S-C-H. E.D. Hirsch wrote a a book called Validity in Interpretation. And it defended the notion of objectivity in, in his case, in humanistic studies and saying that the meaning of a text does not change. So he was defending the proposition that we were talking about a text uh, cannot mean what it never meant. But as it relates to the Bible, this issue of adhering to the given laws of language, including the author's intended meaning, uh, being controlling and not changing, that rears its head primarily this way with regard to prophecies in the first part of the Bible, the, the Old Testament. And the belief is this, that some of the meaning of some of the prophecies in the first part of the Bible, the predictions in the Old Testament, is not derived from the author in the Old Testament, but rather the, the meaning for us is based on how it's used by authors in the New Testament. That is the New Testament can reassign the meaning according to this particular view.
0: So I'm sure they give some sort of justification for why they believe that, right? The, the original meaning of the passages has somehow changed by the time it gets to the New Testament, something like that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's based on how they see the New Testament writers using passages from the Old Testament. Those of you familiar with your Bible, you know if you read in your New Testament, you often have quotations from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, or you have allusions to the uh, first part of the Bible. And so this has to do with how they see the way the New Testament writers use passages from the Old Testament. And when they see the New Testament writers quoting, And applying a passage in a way that's not the same as the context of the original Old Testament writer, many of them conclude that that means there's a new meaning given to Mm -hmm. us in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Remember last week that I said that every book of the Bible has two authors, God and the human author. And if you separate their intentions, that there's the intended meaning of the human author, and there's the intended meaning of God as the author, if you separate those, you run into trouble. Well, that's what I was referring to, this very thing now, where God apparently had a larger meaning that is now disclosed to us in the way it's used in the New Testament. That's the idea, you know, because the Bible is in fact unique in its origin, because it's written by humans, but it's ultimately from God, that's that's unique, then many conclude that it's also unique in its interpretation that you have special rules of interpretation that have to be applied to the Bible that aren't applied to anything else. That these given laws of interpretation that just go with the nature of the case for humanity to communicate, that those given laws of interpretation do not apply across the board to the Bible. Now, I want to try to delve into that a little bit, but I want to acknowledge my indebtedness for what follows to Dr. Mark Snowberger, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Many of our listeners are familiar with him. He's, in fact, teaching a class for us uh, midweek on Thursday nights right now, and has been doing that for several semesters uh, for us. But he had a series of short articles on the subject. Uh, And in turn, in his articles, he acknowledges his dependence in part on our mutual theological mentor, the late Dr. Roland McCune of DBTS. Dr. Snowberger comments on the problem with finding a deeper meaning, God's meaning, beyond the original authors he says the bible since it's written in a normal manner with respect to grammar and syntax and genres and figures and so on it contains no additional hidden meanings that were missed by the original writers and readers who were using standard grammatical and interpretive methods a statement made in the old testament had precisely the same meaning to its immediate readers that it has to its modern readers. True, later Revelation, the New Testament, often clarifies or expands uh, what was known by earlier Revelation, but it never divulges hidden messages that were unknown to the original communicators, much less those that re signify, reassign meaning to the text. In the words of, of one scholar, the moment we admit the principle that portions of Scripture contain a double sense, we introduce an element of uncertainty in the sacred volume, and we unsettle all scientific objective interpretation. Who knows, says Dr. Snowberg, perhaps the plain meaning of the precious New Testament promises of things like eternal life and heaven and eternal reward are one day going to yield to some new meaning that rises to replace it. Just to show that there really are people who believe that what God said in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, is not really going to happen as it was promised. And and friends, our viewers, there are many, many people who believe this, many, many good people who believe this. One of them says this, quote, The promises of God are never an announcement of what God has irrevocably determined to do. Let me say that again. The promises of God are never an announcement of of what God has irrevocably determined to do, but only of what he will do in certain circumstances. If this makes prophecy seem very uncertain, I am very sorry, but I cannot help it, for it is the way that it is, says that author.
0: That's that's a little unsettling <laughs> to, yeah, to sure. uh, consider. Uh, so so, what are some of the areas of the Bible where this shows up and makes a difference in how we understand what God has promised? And what are some examples of this?
1: Well, Dr. Snowberger points out that uh, that many end up creating new linguistic options that the original author just demonstrably just obviously never intended. So for instance, After God clarifies at length and with unequivocal specificity that Abram's biological seed would be eternally plentiful, that's in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 15 verses 2 through 5. God uh, clarifies at some length and with unequivocal specificity, Abram's biological seed is going to be eternally plentiful. It's not possible for a modern interpreter now to allow that explicit denotation to fall away in favor of a, a quote, greater seed and a greater Israel that kind of supersedes the specific and literal promise made to Abram. Something that Abram did not have in mind on this particular historical occasion in Genesis 15 when God made this promise to him. But that's how many interpret God's promise to Abram. Similar fashion, after God invites Abram to walk back and forth through the land of promise in order to establish its parameters, its precise length, its breadth, and its contours, it's not possible then for this explicit denotation to fall away in favor of a, quote, greater land that Abram did not have in mind on this particular historical occasion. And then likewise, when the prophets dedicate dozens of chapters in the Old Testament to exulting about millennial blessings, the future kingdom blessings, and these blessings are geologic, geological, and they're zoological, and meteorological, and agricultural, and medical, and political, and sociological, and on it goes, it's simply not possible for the modern reader to reassign meaning to these as merely spiritual blessings rather than the physical blessings, material blessings that they are in their context.
0: So you said earlier that uh, sometimes the New Testament writers do uh, quote and apply a passage in a way that's not exactly the same as an Old Testament or or the original writer uh, was doing. So if we're not to conclude that they've now assigned a new meaning to that text, then, then how do we deal with those kinds of passages?
1: Well, you know, first, let's be very clear that we have to approach anything we read, anything we hear, anything we're interpreting, interpreting with an understanding that this is how language works. And so because of the nature of language, we are not going to succumb to the temptation to make an exception and say, well, this passage from the Old Testament now means something different or something even more than what it did when it was first written. And and the reason that we're very zealous, we should be, to maintain these principles of the given laws of, of language, these transcendental laws of language, is because we don't want to fall into what I quoted earlier, where the writer says God's promises are not what God has irrevocably determined to do. I mean, the truth is the promise of land to Israel and the promise of a biological seed to Abram that's going to be eternally plentiful in the promise of a literal kingdom of almost Eden-like conditions that we've been talking about over the last few weeks on Sunday mornings in our study of book in the book of Revelation. All of these, indeed, are unconditional promises of God, and he will irrevocably do these. Hmm. Yeah. In the New Testament, speaking of some of these promises to his people Israel, in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, verse 29, quote, God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So we do not want to concede that something God has promised will not happen in the way he promised it. And that's because if you use some special method to interpret the Bible rather than the given normal laws of interpretation, then one, it makes the meaning of scripture really unavailable to Everybody who's not apprised of the special method of getting at the meaning. And secondly, it really can call into question the integrity and the authority of the Bible itself if these promises can be given, but they're actually not going to be fulfilled the way they were given.
0: That's good. So in the time that we have left, could you maybe flesh out for us how these two approaches uh, look when used? How do they work?
1: Well, Dr. Snowberger offers a good example in uh, the paper, that series of articles that he wrote that we can send to any of you who request it. But, but quickly, here's an example uh, that he uses in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew 2 verses uh, 15 through 18. Matthew quotes in those four verses, he quotes two Old Testament passages, one from Hosea chapter 11, another from Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, neither of those Old Testament passages are predicting anything. If you go and look at those passages, Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31, you'll see that they're just narrating something that happened at the time that those two prophets wrote. But you come to your New Testament, here's Matthew saying that events in the life, uh, the early life of Jesus and of Mary and Joseph, are, quote, fulfilling those passages well, now you're faced with a dilemma. You've got a New Testament writer using the Old Testament, and you look at him saying, this is fulfilling these passages. You look back at those passages in Hosea and Jeremiah, and neither of them were actually actually predicting anything. Now, what do you do? You're going to be faced with, what approach are you going to take? And those who take a non-literal approach say that God is using Matthew now to progressively divulge a narrative that's embedded in the first part of the Bible, in Hosea and in Jeremiah, known originally and completely only to God. Hosea didn't know it, Jeremiah didn't know it, but God knew it, and now it's being divulged in the New Testament. And looking at it this way is how we, in our day, now can fully appreciate what these Old Testament passages mean.
0: That kind of so uh, does that kind of does some violence to how we understand inspiration to work right
1: yeah and and you know god gave to those writers his meaning and they put down his meaning in writing uh, in the in the scriptures that were inspired as you as you say but now what we had apparently in the old testament we didn't have the full meaning now in the new testament you have, the, you have the meaning. So we don't know what they fully meant until we get to the New Testament according to this approach. But that violates the principle that a text cannot mean what it never meant, a better approach. Rather than coming up with a unique way to interpret is to just look more carefully at the passage and to say, given the laws of language, given the necessary rules of communication, and that this is how... God spoke to Adam and Eve, and this is how all communication has to to take place. And this is how, by the way, all of the passages relating to Jesus' first coming were literally fulfilled. So why would we not expect that those related to his second coming would be literally fulfilled? In light of all of that, instead of coming up with a unique way to interpret, look more carefully at the passage and, and find ways that can harmonize what the New Testament passage says with what Old Testament writers like Hosea and Jeremiah have already meant. It's not going to mean something different. It meant what it meant. And now let's look at how the New Testament writer is using it. Now, one way to do that in these particular cases is to see, for example, that the Greek word in Matthew chapter 2 that's translated fulfill can mean nothing more than an analogy that's made after the fact. And if you if you if you do that, it keeps the meaning of the Old Testament passage intact, but you don't resort to a whole new interpretive method. So
0: would that would that be kind of like someone saying it's like when?
1: Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. uh, And and but you can use the, the word fulfill has a semantic range that allows for it to be used that way. Exactly right. Uh, so let me just summarize, you know, why we're concerned about this and how I really implore you, our, our viewers, to, to think about this. Uh, people who spiritualize, who allegorize the, the Bible, they, they believe that the New Testament writers sometimes violate the received given transcendental laws of language, and they believe that the New Testament writers are allowed to do that because they were inspired. So back to what you said, Pastor Larry, this is a different view of inspiration, um, a different understanding of what that means, because in their approach to inspiration, they separate the meaning of the divine author and the human author. Mm, And so in doing that now, the New Testament writers have this, this latitude and under inspiration, they can now use the Old Testament promises in ways that would have been foreign to the Old Testament writers. So those who believe this do that, they believe that the New Testament writers have liberty to do that, because they are writing under inspiration. So all of the normal rules are are suspended of received given transcendental laws of language. I don't believe that. And I just to be perfectly (laughs) direct, I don't think that you you should too. it just creates all sorts of havoc. And Creates the problems that I mentioned earlier about the integrity and the authority of what God has promised. Uh, He's really going to do the things that he said he's going to do in the way he said he's going to do them. So that means you need to decide if you believe that the Bible offers an entirely new interpretive method that's not found anywhere else. I mean, that's really what happens here in the way our friends, and and I say friends, good people, But the way they uh, interpret the New Testament writers' use of the Old Testament, it amounts to an interpretive method that you couldn't use in our conversation here. You couldn't use in writing an email to someone. You can't use anyplace else. So, dear viewer, you need to decide. Do you believe that that is what the Bible does? Uh, I don't believe it does for the reasons I gave. The nature of language... The way God made humanity to communicate, the fact that he communicates his meaning through the human author, and the, that meaning of God's and the human author is one in the same meaning, and God does what he promises as he promised it. I recommend Dr. Snowberger's uh, series of uh, articles that we've got combined in one uh, PDF, and we'll be happy to send that to any who ask for it.
0: I think we'll actually uh, we'll be able to tag that. If you're listening on a podcast, um, I don't know that we could tag it on that. But if you go to this episode on our website, it will be right there as a link to download, right next to the episode window where you watch it. So um, great. Well, thanks, uh, Pastor Ken, for these these two weeks. I th- hope uh, you at home have found this very helpful, uh, very important uh, subject, as it really underlies how we understand the Bible, how we approach it and are able to then understand what God has said to us. So uh, I wanna remind you of resources that are available to you, uh, pretty much everything we offer. If you don't know where to look on YouTube or Facebook or podcast apps, if you go to cbctrenton.com, like you see on your screen right there, you'll be able to find any resources that we've produced. And then as well, just a reminder, if you follow our page on Facebook, um, or if you go to our YouTube channel, all of these use the handle at CBC Trenton. You can subscribe there. You can even hit a little notification bell and it'll let you know when our new episodes come out. And then a lot of times uh, when we have events and things, we'll put those on our uh, the other social media channel we have, which is on Instagram. So any of those three places you can follow us. And uh, we are glad that you tuned in this week to uh, to listen again, hear the conclusion of this and uh, we hope we'll see you in the next episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com or text it to us at nine seven zero zero zero.